This is Circulating Ideas, episode number 234. My name is Steve Thomas, and my guest today is John Hubbard. He is a librarian at Washington University in St. Louis and the creator of Library Link of the Day. Don't forget to sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter at circideas.substack.com for more information about guests and other topics of interest. John Hubbard, welcome to Circulating Ideas. How did you get started in librarianship? What was your interest in the field initially? Kind of stumbled upon it, like most people really don't really grow up saying, I want to be a librarian when I grow up. I've always kind of liked using technology, helping people find what they need. I stumbled around a little bit after my undergrad degree, didn't do a whole lot with it. And it was a former roommate of mine who one day said, have you thought about library school? And the rest is history. I got my MLS at Drexel University in Philly and started on a career that's now over 20 years, <laughs> mainly using technology to aid the mission of libraries, which, of course, the technology involved has changed considerably over the years. And so that has made positions I'm in a bit of a lightning rod. There's been some learning opportunities for me along the way, coping with change management and figuring out the best way to enact change in organizations that, at least historically, are kind of change of verbs. You know, there's a lot of stability in how the traditional library role operates. And I think that has to do with us preserving information. A big part of that is just kind of maintaining the same way we do things. There is now a need for us to evolve and get with the changes if we're to survive. In academia, for example, there's this overblown emphasis that we can never change much of anything at all during the middle of the semester. It's always like, well, I've just taught 20 students how to use the old website, so we can't change it now to benefit right. the other 10,000 students because they've learned the old website, so we can't change it. We can't redo any sort of interface. We can't upgrade the catalog. We can't do this. That, to me, just is not the right way to approach things. If it's a better overall system, it's worth shifting. Because of the same clientele we have that log into Gmail one day and boom, it's different. People can get used to change fairly well. Yeah, there's that fear of change from staff a lot of times. And there's a fear of change with our users as well, but we can walk them through that. That's part of our processes. So you can't use that as a reason not to. I always say, if you get the, that's how we've always done it response, that should be a cue in your head of, well, maybe I should think through that. That should never be the reason that you do something. Now, maybe how you've always done it is the right way, but go back and look at it again and see why is it that we do it this way? And is that the best way? Yeah, and I definitely think we need to do more of that constantly reevaluating how we're currently doing and whether or not it's best to keep those models because there might be better systems. It's the tricky thing. Humans are kind of hardwired to view changes as a threat. If there's something that we used to do where a lot of people found their purpose, they found their calling, they have a sense of worth of helping people do something and needing to be the source where people have to come to to explain them and how the library works. If we switch to a newer system, that role is then eliminated. 
where people can figure it out on their own, something else where that role that they have is no longer needed. There's kind of a fear of obsolescence there. I've been a librarian long enough that I remember getting a lot of phone calls and a lot of walking traffic, just ready reference questions. You know, what's the phone number for this? What's the capital of this? And stuff like that. By and large, you don't need libraries for anymore. That, that role is fulfilled elsewhere by other information sources. People can go in and directly get the answer to those questions themselves. And we don't really have a calling as much to, to do that sort of work. Like you said, people think of that as obsolescence then, but what you need to be thinking of is how then do we evolve our missions and our services to meet what people actually do need? Just because you can plug in directions to Google Maps now and it tells you how to get there. You don't have to have the librarian get out the big <laughs> fold out map and show you how to get somewhere. And there's a computer that's just looking at lines on a map and giving you driving directions that involve you driving off a fishing pier. There's a <laughs> lot of analogous things there. Maybe don't get your medical information from a Facebook anti-vaxxer. There's a lot of trade-offs with more and more information being out there that there's a lot of more dubious stuff in the mix. And so it's all the more important for us to help people, not for us to do it for them. And that was the old model. We would pick out good sources. They'd be on the shelf and say, okay, this is peer reviewed. This is on our shelf. This you can trust. And the other stuff, don't use Wikipedia ever, no matter what. That, that was a bad way of doing things. So the better system is to realize that there's kind of a continuum of what you can trust and what you should be a little more, at least dubious about, and always kind of apply that, no matter what you're looking for. Because there's been you know, fraudulent studies published in scientific journals. There's been bogus interviews published by newspapers. You can't trust anything, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, you have to take everything with a grain of salt, even a yeah. peer-reviewed journal. The whole anti-vax movement came from a peer-reviewed article that was later withdrawn, but... Acted, but the damage was done. Yeah. And as things like YouTube are constructed to maximize engagement, you can really fall down the rabbit hole in those types of platforms more and more. Type a search into YouTube for faked moon landing. And sure enough, eventually, even your Google news feed is probably going to be filled up with a lot more crackpot things. So you have these blinders on to a more objective view of reality. I think that's pretty dangerous. What can happen? Yeah. And I think with change management, you need to have an understanding of your organization of how fast to go or how slow to go. You don't want to just jump on the newest hot thing just because it's the newest hot thing. You want to make sure that it's the best thing for your organization. Yeah, I mean, that's the catch-22. The riskiest thing of all in the long term, of course, is never changing. That is the surefire way to obsolete. Yeah, but right. there is, of course, a risk in trying new things, which you don't know, by definition, if they may or may not work out. So you need to have what organizational text called the freedom to fail. You yeah. to try new things and see if they work. And as you look at the switch from going back to card catalogs to the web OPEX to now discovery layers, it's a big change in really just the methods for going and searching and finding and getting stuff. It's nothing to get from a library user's perspective, certainly excited about it in and of it. <laughs> it's merely a means to an end. So we can't really get hung up 
And this is where we're hurting ourselves because we've, of course, devoted our careers to figuring out how these things work and configuring them and customizing them and putting our little mark on them. And when a newer method comes around that makes things by any practical definition better, easier, more accessible, a better way for people to find and get what they need, you see some weird counterarguments coming out of the woodwork. You know, people cherry pick flaws in new systems. They just say, well, we just can't change that. There's this kind of righteousness and zealousness that comes into that. We were talking before we started recording about vocational law, that, that there's this excuse that we give ourselves, that when we idealize what we do to the point of making the status quo and other outdated or oppressive systems beyond reproach, that's dangerous. And saying we've always done it that way is not a meaningful counter-argument. That's the danger because I, I can see how we, and probably there, I'm sure there are other professions that have vocational law. Any profession where you feel like if there's a calling, I guess, is where you're, you're going to fall into that. Because we are a service industry, so you can see where people start down that path, but you have to know where the limit is. And I think those are tied together, vocational law, and that's how we've always done it because it's sort of well, we already made that decision. And of course, we're wonderful and great. And so, of course, we know how to do this already. So I think those are probably tied together a little bit. Yeah. And when I think back to the more contentious arguments I've had about interface design or just service philosophies, it's usually when I'm butting up my head against someone who just has no rational base. It's not based on data. It's not based on any particular evidence. It's just like, well... We have to collect library fines because we have to. It's this circular reasoning that has no factual base. And when you're dealing with someone who has this belief that is not based on any particular uh, real world data that you can yeah. then have a rational argument with them to change, it's frustrating. As far as I know, there's no studies that show that having library fines actually get materials back earlier than they would without and library fines. Of course, it's, it's very to access. And libraries that have eliminated fines have got a lot of turn that they've otherwise gotten lost. It's not the best press to see people arrested and have mugshots in the media for overdue library books. There's just a slew of arguments that counteract that $100 a year that you get in your revenue stream. But it's just more that people are stuck with what they've had. And this happens, like I said before, in design debates where if someone wants something a certain color and I've designed it a different color, battle lines get drawn. People get dug in just because just they get emotionally invested in particular design choices. And it's not really based on like, well, we did usability testing. This is not good colorblind friendly scheme or something like that. It's not based on that sort of stuff. It's just based on, you know, I'm right. I want to do it my way. Well, you mentioned discovery layers earlier, and that's one of those things that, I mean, it was a third-party opportunity, I guess, but it's like our catalogs stink, so somebody had to create another project to go on top of our catalogs to actually make them usable and good. That's how I've always kind of seen it. I think they work well. They do what they're supposed to do, but it seems like if the initial ILS vendor had actually made their catalog do these things, you wouldn't need this extra layer on top of it. Yeah, and the marketplace is, of course, a mess right now. Yes. All these different vendors that are all being bought out by different holdings companies. Mm -hmm. Reading was one of your guests. We've done a lot of documentation, has some really pressing looking charts in particular about all the monopolies that are essentially forming 
working around yes. the system. So you have all these legacy catalog systems. Discovery layers are 10, 15 years old now. It's, they're the new kid on the block or anything. But the way that they work is more like Google compared to a telnet interface where you need to know all these archaic commands. So it's more accessible. So if step one is maybe getting students to realize don't just use Wikipedia, use the library as well. Step two is saying, hey, check out this essentially search engine that we have. And that's why I hate using terms like OPAC or even catalog. People think it's the course catalog or library search engine. It's not the end-all be-all. It's not one-stop shopping, but it's a good place to start to find what you have. There's a lot of stuff in there, up to billions of records. It just kind of mixes them all together. The relevancy ranking isn't always the best. We touched before on things like algorithmic bias or certainly a thing even in library discovery layers. But they can be a further stepping stone and a gateway to searching more dedicated kind of subject matter if you have a particular academic subject. There's a chemistry database where you can go in and draw chemical bonds. And you can't do that in a discovery or, you know, court case numbers like that. You can't do that in discovery layer. Yeah. In my interview with Marshall, that chart that he's got of all the things, I mean, he's been keeping it, you know, for decades now or whatever. And the colors get less and less because people just get bought up and bought up and bought up. And that's where we are now with consolidation. And the worst thing is when they are, increasingly, I think you've mentioned, not just that ProQuest and EBSCO or whoever owns everything, but then on top of that, it's just financial group or whatever that owns it. And they're just trying to eke out profit. Anything more than shareholder value. They're not focused on long-term things. For example, the holdings company, Clara, owns Mm -hmm. like eight OPACs. There's no reason for all those multiple product lines to exist. Um, need one at most. And so it's interesting. And I've had a support ticket with Primo where they referred to something with our Sierra OPAC as a third-party integration. And punchline there is, well, Sierra, Primo are owned by the same company. now. There is a neat product. Fortunately, it's kind of vaporware right now called Olio, which is designed to be an open source ILS. And in some ways, it's even yeah. more vaporware because they've tethered the front end So EBSCO has kind of co-opted like, hey, buy this open source system from us. It's like, wait, what? (laughs) So not only is there no like modern capabilities for it to, as I understand it, manage electronic collections, which like, hey, you kind of need to do this this day and age. It's essentially coupled with, just like Primo, it's coupled with a commercial product that's still under development. So it's been Kind of encouraging to see something like that take off, but also kind of like a head scratcher. Like, well, this is destined to just be an EBSCO product, isn't it? Right. I'm so surprised that Clarivate owns just so many products. I keep expecting them to start collapsing them and saying, oh, well, there's no more Sierra. There's no more whatever. And then get it down to like maybe two or three so that, you know, one's for the academic market, one's for the public market or something. But yeah, why they still have all of them, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure some people are happy with that because you don't want to change catalogs, but... Yeah, I think that just is a... Like I said, that's a shareholder value issue. Yeah. That requires a different type of thinking when you're not trying to just look at this quarter's profit lines to to say, like, look, let's invest in streamlining us and, and migrating 
things. So you have all these different plans. Now they've done a little work. They've combined the Primo and Summon backend a little bit, but still separate products. So it's messy. We've had third-party discovery layers for a long time, and then also the ones by the vendors themselves. I think they're trying to use those discovery layers to go across their various products. So like this discovery layer will work with this catalog and this catalog and this catalog. So maybe long-term, that's how they're trying to get things together. But yeah, I don't see a lot of evidence of long-term thinking there. Yeah, we mentioned algorithmic bias before, where, of course, the computer itself isn't prejudiced. It's just how it has been programmed to look at the frequency of words being paired together and stuff like that. It can present very biased results. And the related issue with that is, I'm not sure the best term for this, but just bad subject type. You know, mm-hmm. understandable bad terminology. The illegal aliens is the most famous. And this is a tricky issue. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of different ways you can approach it. My beef with this type of setup is that, well, from the discovery standpoint, people aren't typing in microcomputers into the search box. Right. If they ever did. And that was a longstanding Library of Congress subject heading. And the only way to change that was to get the Library of Congress to change. Now, people started changing illegal aliens at the local level or Library of Congress over a decade to change it. And I don't know the best answer there. You know, if someone enters now illegal aliens into the search box, what should happen? You know, how do we deliver map results and label things in the best way? That's a lot of legwork. But do you want to keep tabs on the thousands of geographical boundary disputes in the Mm -hmm. world today with all the different labelings of, you know, to better a lot of different things like that? It's such a thorny issue. It makes me think if it might someday be possible that controlled vocabulary could become more trouble in it. There's just a can of worms there. I know in some EBSCO database, you can go in and just freestyle type a few keywords like children and say map keyword to subject category. So it will show results with the juveniles tag. Maybe a further step would be just be, let's just do away with, um, and there's a lot of kind of tech hand waving here of whether we'll be capable of doing this in a non-biased way, but is there potential at least to to get rid of the human element of cataloging? That's something that's very sacred to a lot of human catalogers. We do things better than the computer and a computer will never be able to match that. And I think with whether it's true AI or not, but what's called AI and the way more things are becoming automated, it can be less meaningful for humans to continue doing it. It used to be an open question if machines would be better at certain tasks than us. And just like a hydraulic press is stronger than any human now, you know, software programs can reliably beat any human at chess. And so it just comes a question of, is this a meaningful activity for humans to be doing if it can be automated? Yeah. The computers are good at math and chess is kind of math at the core. Yeah. And it's not like a strategy. It's not conscious. They're like these chatbots that have made headlines. Right. They're just pulling together stuff they farted, like this AI generated artwork, weird hands with six fingers and stuff. That's because it doesn't know that it's drawing a human that should have five fingers. So the ways that it messes up are still quite alarming. And it shows that it's not really thinking, but it's definitely something to keep on the radar. Right, because they keep getting better. And so it's at a certain point, I mean, you wrote in your blog about, about the Uncanny Valley. You could always tell like that. I mean, 
the Polar Express movie is kind of the big, oh, those children are scary looking <laughs> because they have dead eyes. But nowadays, they're making like real people and putting them out. And you can tell still, but it's not Polar Express anymore. Yeah, and humans want to have, and this goes back to finding your, your calling and meaningful work. You don't want to have to do something that you're just working on an assembly line because it's cheaper to pay you yeah. than to automate. There yeah. was an interesting thing in gaming about a decade ago where the online game Warcraft was structured around a lot of menial methods to level up your character. And so they made a bot that would go in and just click on things and have your character automatically fish or craft or whatever, called Glider. And the response by the software developer was, of course, to sue the person who made that. Mm-hmm. And it was just an, an interesting case there to me because to have meaningful gameplay, it shouldn't be something where you click on this recipe 8,000 times or you kill this same monster 10,000 times because there's a 0.001% drop rate mm-hmm. The item generator to do that. I don't have time to do as much gaming as I did in my youth, but that's part of the problem is that there's a lot of kind of grindy aspect to online gaming been very much perverted by, you want to talk about business models, the pay to win mindset where people just buy accelerated leveling and things like that. And that's especially egregious in mobile gaming where it's free to download, but then, oh, well, if you want to get through this, through this level, you have to have the sort of or whatever and you had to buy it for two dollars and like i said it's predatory but this definitely is a parallel to how google is built from the ground up with a different purpose than a library google is at its core an advertising company to maximize Mm -hmm. giving you funny cat videos and the like is incidental to their true mission and so a library and this is where you can see why people fall into this vocational all trap, but we are different. We are built to help people find and get factual information and what they need in the best way. Yeah. And that, that's kind of a different purpose. And there will be, just as Google got rid of some of those ready reference questions, there will be things eventually probably that these little chat bots or whatever that will be able to take parts of our jobs as well. But just like with the chess, initially, the computers could not be grandmasters, but eventually they could because the grandmasters before had these strategies that maybe they'd never done before. And so they can sneak around, whatever. But now computers know every possible move and what the best move is every single time. But our mission is not necessarily to do those grinding tasks. On gaming, there was even like a little subculture of people doing those tasks, not just bots or whatever that would go in and just get gold or coins yeah, or whatever they need to get. Gold arming. And it was yeah. just a third world country. So it would employ Real life people for pennies yep. go in yep. and kill that same monster all day long. And other people would go in and buy those items back. It's a very strange. Yeah. Technology takes us in good places and odd places. With the uh, objectionable su- subject headings, before we get away from that too much, I did want to uh, emphasize that I agree that it's hard to get away from those objectionable terms because, like you said, somebody might use those terms to find that even if they are bad and objectionable, you know, don't you still need to help a horrible person find the book? Yeah. How do you make that law? <laughs> right. Illegal aliens is still the official term. Yeah. So 
it's certainly used in a derogatory way. Mm -hmm. Argue against that either, but it's a thorny problem because it's like the who decides who gets to say if you have this old yearbook photo up on your website that has someone in blackface, should that be online? Should you either proactively on your own or just wait till, say, the person in the photograph is a politician running for pocket? Can you do me a favor? Take that down. Yeah. I know the EU is on the edge of that kind of stuff more than the US of really doing their yeah, right, of, right, right was, to be forgotten kind of stuff. Yeah. There was a neat article um a colleague at UW mine wrote a while ago about how the right to be forgotten is inherently in conflict with the mission of a library to preserve their information. If someone wants to know information about someone. And that certain someone says, hey, I'm on the witness protection program or whatever or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, at some point, maybe they have rights to say like, hey, don't include this information. Withdraw this book that I wrote. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk about digital preservation in a minute. But first, let's talk about a lot of people might know you from the most, which is Library Link of the Day, which it's completely coincidental, but you've been doing it for 20 years now. So I didn't mean to do this on your 20th anniversary, but. Happy what? 20 years of doing library link of the day. No spring chicken. I looked back and, and sure enough, my first link went out, I think, to all of two people on January 15, 2003. And just to take you back, that was before Facebook existed. Social media was not really on the scene. Our methods for disseminating library news amongst colleagues involved the print, current issues being routed around the building. And the libraries would check out their initials. And so I started sending email links to colleagues. Hey, check out this article on this. And that, that kind of grew into, let's have it more opt-in. I don't want to bug people. And so I made this website. It posted and you can subscribe to get it in your email inbox as well. Where day in, day out, almost 20 years now, I have chosen a library story in some way related to libraries on the web, usually a recent news article, and it just goes out day in, day out. So yeah, going on 20 years. The upswing of this, of course, it's not done for purely selfish reasons. The main component of why I keep doing it is it forces me just every day, you know, I can queue things up if I'm going on vacation or something, but I have to go in and look around and do some kind of low-level research. Most selections you'd be kind of disappointed here are just from google news searches <laughs> of relevant keywords i do follow some social feeds on things like twitter i try to avoid being in a professional echo chamber but it's kind of helped me stay because back again in 2003 this is when blogging hit the mainstream a lot of librarians were out there kind of making a name for themselves just posting commentary on news of the day about what was going on at the time with like how OPEC suck. Well, that's still a thing. Just other privacy-related issues. Then it was more about the Patriot Act, like about what companies are doing now. I just found it easier just to pick a news story rather than to just add commentary about it. I've since found a little cause to write about things. And you mentioned I do have a little blog that I've, I've put in a few posts about, mostly about frustrations that I have with <laughs> what I'm feeling at work. So that's been a good outlet as well. But 
it's just one of those things where I've just stuck with it. I don't know how much longer it'll be around. I'm going on <laughs> 20 years, but it's a pretty low investment. It's on my personal web hosts, on my personal web space. I have some basic scripting, which styling that I've updated a little bit over the years. It's to the point, though, where I look at the code, I'm like, wrote this. <laughs> I want to have to update it, but it's been pretty stable. And I use, there's what's called an announcement list feature of my web post where you can just say, I want to email this many people this every day at midnight. That's when I do up the list. About how many subscribers do you have? Well, I can't say for sure because some people might just be checking the website or this is probably less so now, but there is an RSS feed that back feed readers were in their heyday. A lot of people probably access through there. And of course, based on just attrition, I don't know how many people just delete the email or <laughs> just, I think bounces they're supposed to unsubscribe automatically. The link this morning was sent out to 14,112 emails. So the subscriber count has kind of plateaued recently. I think there's only so many people in the profession. I get a nice email a few months from someone to say, hey, I'm retiring. Please unsubscribe me or I'm changing jobs or something like that. You can do that automatically. In the early years before I had it configured properly, I would get the bounces. Every morning I would get 20 vacation messages and things like that, or just people replying saying, hey, this is a neat story or there's been stories that people have not liked either. I think one that got the most criticism was, this is a long time ago, but I posted a story that was about the Vatican Library archives that were being kept secret. And the article included some pretty harsh and personal attacks about the Pope. And that upset people, which is weird because I try not to choose rage bait and clickbait that much. But I've had other stories about why libraries shouldn't exist and then things like that. A few people send me link suggestions every now and then and maybe 50-50 take them. The most recent one, someone sent me a editorial on a tabloid about why getting rid of library fines was a bad idea. So skimmed it. It was very clearly something that was posted to maximize engagement, yeah. to be kind of inflammatory. I'm like, yeah, this isn't really productive. And I think over the years, I've gotten probably a little carried away when things became super popular, like 3D printing. I know there was a few months where like every other like, <laughs> obviously the selections are biased based on things in the United States, things in academic libraries, having to do with technology. The past few years, half the links have been about book ban challenges to library materials because this is unprecedented. Alien just announced that this is the greatest number of challenges in the past year ever. And it's gone beyond drag queen story time and things like that. It's gone beyond that. It's saying, hey, we should be able to censor our collection because it's not enough that I don't like this book. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to allow my kid to check it out. No one else should be allowed to check it out either. My child's not going to check that out. That's your purview as a parent. but. Yeah. It's kind of this perverse flip side to the libraries aren't neutral argument because yeah. it's the right wing in this case taking a page from that philosophy and saying, okay, yeah. well, if we're not going to be neutral, let's flip that on its head and say, well, if you're going to ban Nazis, whatever, you know, meeting rooms, and you need to ban these 
other books because they're saying that racism is still a thing. They're crazy stuff. Well, it's funny, though, when I went back to look at the first stories that you had posted, they're about copyright extension, electronic surveillance, open access, patrons complaining about porn in libraries and book banning. And it's like, we're still talking about all that 20 years later. Yeah. And that's depressing that that open access in particular. And yeah, there's still privacy struggles, but we haven't had a whole lot of traction on these issues. So that can be disappointing. There is a news website called LIS News. As a companion piece to my daily link, every December 15th, since 2003, I have posted the top 10 library stories of the year. And yeah, the list is about the same 15 stories over the past 20 years. Some have been more notable, some haven't. But yeah, the top story, of course, past several years has been the craziness about the challenges to library yeah. collections. It's getting more organized now. So it's not just a random person that wants to do it. These groups are getting together and planning how they're going to do it and trying to do it in a more organized fashion. Yeah, scary. And I think we need to find a way to fight back to assert our rights. There's a lot of challenges. We mentioned privacy a few times. More and more companies and governments are taking an effort to curtail the right to read things, particularly anonymously. The whole issue that's fascinating to me is up the concept of controlled digital lending. That's where a library essentially scans a book and checks it out electronically, just like how you can do through Overdrive, only the library is maintaining the checkouts. And this, of course, gets publisher groups hackles up because they're not cut in on the money-making apparatus there. And I don't know the ins and outs of whatever statutes you quote to support that, but the biggest way to summarize it to me is should libraries be allowed to continue to exist in the electronic age? Because if we can't do this, if we can't check out a book, if we can only check it out on the physical format, if we can't check it out electronically, we've essentially lost our purpose. That's going to be totally monetized by, as any librarian can tell you, the licensing agreements on electronic unlimited access information are ridiculous. That Yeah, for whatever reason, I don't know why first sale doctrine does not apply to well, that's um, our, digital and materials. No question. There's an open court case against the Internet Archive that could certainly also argue a little carried away with how they opened up things over COVID to not even be throttled. Everyone can download everything. Yeah, I feel like they may have undermined their own case there. <laughs> yeah, but it's an interesting idea. Speaking of Internet Archive, I had to use the Wayback Machine actually <laughs> to find a lot of the links because they're dead links. What role do you think libraries can play in that kind of preservation of information? Is there a place for libraries in that? I mean, you can't digitize it. You can't store it. Not everything, not every tweet needs to be archived by the Library of Congress. That was a failed project. And with those links going back 20 years, I pretty much hope that that link works for that day. Sometimes there's problems with, especially if I'm finding the link at work or something like that, I might get in through our subscription. So I need to make sure. And the most annoying one has become the New York Times because that's one of those freemium sites where you get yeah. a few the articles a month. Where I try to pick New York Times articles at the beginning of the month. <laughs> because they've gotten a little tighter with their paywall that you used yeah. to be to get in through Google or get in through uh, browsers anonymous mode a little more easily. 
and things are getting locked down a little more. But of course, I try to pick the best news I can from a site that's free. I'm not going to deliberately at least choose something that's paywalled. But that's the problem nowadays is that boxing paywalled. They're happy to get that information out there. Sometimes the better sources of information are paywalled. It's an unfortunate distinction. You mentioned Google News. I know you mentioned also that people send you links, but how do you keep up with the library news? The greatest source, like I said, a subscriber every now and then will, because I have my contact info posted on the website for the link of the day. It'll just say, hey, you know, I found this story interesting, or a lot of times it's self-interested. And as an aside to that, when I have published occasionally an article myself or posted a presentation, there is a vanity component there that I have probably a good dozen times or so by now chosen for the link of the day, something that I wrote. <laughs> Self-promotion's a little weird in our profession. <laughs> I think it's frowned on as a faux pas just because it's kind of tacky, but it's like, these are things that I wrote that I would like to share. How else are you supposed to get that out there? No, I don't do that every time. It has become like the apparatus to just promote my own work, but it's kind of interesting. I do a double take every now and then when I pick something that I've written as a link selection, it's like, yeah, do I really want to do this? Well, we'll have to decide how meta you want to get if there's going to be a link to this episode in library link of the day. Exactly. <laughs> I've already thought about that. It's like, well, I'd like to promote this podcast. So it does happen every now and then where I have a busy day. I've literally at times gone to bed like, oh, shoot, I didn't queue up a link. And I get back up. And that's when you see the quick and dirty Oh, this was the top Google News search for library. Right. So go ahead and just post something like that. In doing my news searches, and this is something I've never taken because it's to me the epitome of low-hanging fruit. The thing that I regularly see is the cliche library news story. And this is on like BBC News, you name it, of the library book that was returned 100 years after it was checked out. It's like this old-timey newspaper filler where they tried to fill the physical space on the newspaper page. It's like, how is this news? But with regularity, every now and then I see one of these stories. So you'll know I'm fully out of ideas if you ever see (laughs) kind of news story posted. But like I said, other things I just come across through email that just in news groups I'm subscribed to that, that get posted or things that show up because I've signed into Google. It knows what I like. So all little topics that I've searched for over the years show up in my newsfeed. I think that's a great exercise, by the way, to just get two people and have them look at each other's YouTube homepage. Because I think you and I know what's going on there, but people kind of lose sight of that. Like you are not being given the same YouTube list of videos that anyone else is. It's skewed, which is largely a good thing, could argue. There's definitely some downsides. You buy one part through Amazon of something, you're done with the house project. But now YouTube or whatever thinks you need, you know, 28 other things. Like, oh, here's how you do this plumbing project. No, I already did that. I don't need to see plumbing videos anymore. Yeah, I bought a dining room table. I don't need 20 more Amazon. But see, that's the type of grasping at straws that, just points out that this isn't really, not at least in any sort of human way, this isn't an intelligent system. Works very well with some things, but YouTube doesn't know what this video is about. It doesn't know what's in the video. It just knows that people who watch the videos you watch are likely to look at this video as well. 
What keeps you motivated to continue doing library link of the day after 20 years? Wonder what the last link will be, right? <laughs> so I don't know. It's just, like I said before, it's a great way that forces myself to stay current. There is some self-interest there. It hasn't landed me any huge jobs or deals or anything. <laughs> but it's just something that I've enjoyed doing. And it's pretty minimal upkeep too, of course, because some days it's something that I come across in my normal course of day, like, oh, bookmark that for queuing up later or something like that. Yeah. The last link should just be a link back to your own site. So just back to the layover link of the day site. So it's just circular. Just say, here we go. Or, or I mean, it'll be the 100 years late books. That's how you know John's done. <laughs> oh, I'm out of ideas. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I think we covered all kinds of different topics here today. Well, thanks for having me. If anybody had any questions about anything and wanted to follow up with you, how can they get in touch with you? If you could include a backlink on yeah. your podcast to library link of the day, at the bottom of the page, there's just a little contact form that has my personal email address, also has a little form you can fill out to contact me. Listeners can find that link in the show notes. And I mentioned, call it a blog. It's something on medium.com, which is a little strange platform. There's a lot of kind of clickbait and tech bro kind of stuff there, but it's a free blogging platform. So what are you going to do? So it's hubbard.medium.com. And I've slowed down on it because I've kind of run out of stuff to say really, but that's where a lot of more punditry kind of stuff that I've had to say about, like we said before, things like privacy and, and other issues that I have something to say about. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And thanks for Library Link of the Day. I learned a lot from that. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guest, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening, and keep circulating your ideas.